Okay, well, uh, thanks for coming on, Mark. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a bit to get things started? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm Mark Nowak. Uh, I'm the founding director of the Worker Writer School uh, in New York City and uh, with workshops elsewhere. And I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this new book, Social Poetics. Yeah, and I, one thing I've known about your work for a while, and one thing that I vaguely remember, and I've been trying to find for years, was I feel like there was a clip on YouTube several years ago of of a South African a worker in, in a Ford plant, I want to say, who was like talking about you. I think you had asked him, like, what is there any message you want to send to like the workers in Ford in the United States? And I think this was might have been in the 80s. And the person and the guy said, like, uh, you know, they're outsourcing our jobs here, too. Am I am I am I misremembering that? Because I've been looking for that clip for for years. No, that, there, there was happen? there was a clip. There's a Vimeo clip of uh, one of the workers in my workshop at the St. Paul Ford Assembly Plant uh, reading a poem, and then two response poems by workers from my workshop in Pretoria in South Africa. But there was a conversation to that effect that happened that I think I, I wrote about it somewhere, uh, but I can't remember where. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I That's one thing I've been wondering about or trying to remember for years, and I've I just can't remember or find where it was originally, but <laughs> thank you for uh, saying that that's actually what happened. But, you know, you write about that experience in South Africa and, you know, all over the world in, in your new book, Social Poetics. And I guess, like, one thing I wanted to ask you specifically about about that is, you know, in the past, and I, and this has been an ongoing dialogue for a number of years now about, like, you know, the failings of U.S. MFA type programs, but you know, what I see here is, you know, in social poetics is, I guess, among other things, an attempt to build an alternative to that. And maybe, like, am I, am I reading that right Do you, uh, there? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, you know, certainly we're in a time now of a need for alternative institutions, right? I mean, it's become very clear in the past few weeks or the past few months. Uh, and so one of the things is that in doing these workshops that I had been doing, um, you know, teaching in schools, teaching in prisons, and then starting about 15 years ago, teaching uh, with trade unions and worker centers, uh, that there is a long history of the creative writing workshop being used in moments of insurrection, rebellion, etc. right? And so, but there was, there's no history of that. And so I wanted to not say that the Worker Writer School was really something brand new and different, but instead that it was part of this long tradition that goes back in the book, at least to the, the workshops after the Watts uprising uh, and through the New York uh, City teacher strike and June Jordan's workshops, through Attica workshops, through the South African workshops, the Sandinistas, that this is this whole history that's been kind of suppressed of the way in which the creative writing workshop had been really a part of community struggle for a, a very long time. But we don't learn about that in the institutions, you know, we, that, that's kind of kept out. And so social poetics is really an attempt to suggest that these alternative workshops have been around for a really long time and, and are really important. In Juliana Spar's latest book, I think she argues something to the effect of, among, among other things, one of the things she points out is, you know, uh, starting in the 30s, I think, 
there had there had been a longstanding tradition of workshops from you know social movements and in response to all that radicalism uh, they were you know made part of the university and then in a sense privatized i think was her line there and i guess you know you try and uh reclaim some like, like a, in a people's history type sense some of the radical roots of the of the writer's workshop and you know like we've talked i've talked about like ernesto cardinal's work on on here too that's that's some <laughs> to some extent but you know there's there's examples all over all over the world maybe you could talk about like your experience running workshops whether it's in uh south africa or the united states like what what's that been like over the past you know few years well yeah you know there's there's one story that's in the book um that to me is really illustrative of that and that was you know when i started doing the workshops at the ford plant in saint paul i uh I had this idea that, and the, the plant was closing. It was part of this program, Ford Modernization Program, called The Way Forward, which meant closing something like 13 factories in the U.S. and Canada, putting 30,000 well-paid workers out of their job and health benefits, you know, parallels in certain ways to what we're seeing uh, in the economy today. And... I had this great idea, you know, we always as poets have this like, oh, this is my thing, that I'm going to go and do this workshop at all the other 12 plants in the U.S. and Canada that are closing, you know, and we'll build a, like a website or a database of workers from all these different factories writing poems and what that's going to look like and sound like. Like, what does it mean to the workers themselves? Because in the newspaper articles, they get like a half a sentence, you know, oh, it's going to be terrible. I don't know what I'm going to do next, right? Like, that's it, period. And then we go on. Um, but I, I wrote and emailed and called all of those different uh, UAW unions of the plants that were closing, and I never heard back from any of them. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, a little while later, I ended up getting a grant uh, to go and travel. And I had written a grant that I wanted to study the worker poetry movement in South Africa and go to one museum in particular, the National English Language Museum. Uh, and so uh, to, to look at their collections because they have the best library there. And so when I went, I was like, oh, well, there's two four plants in South Africa, one in Pretoria, one in Port Elizabeth. And what if I could do like a workshop or even just go meet people there? And I wrote to them after having gotten the silence from all of these UAW um, uh, offices. And they wrote back like two or three days later this long email of like, yes, we'd like you to do two hour, uh, two day, eight hour a day poetry workshops in both of the Ford plants. You know, here is the number of your driver are you a vegetarian for the catered meals? It was like this completely opposite reaction, in part because there had been, of course, a really long tradition of like a collaboration between activist trade union and cultural workers in South Africa in the anti-apartheid struggles. Um, you know, and so that was a really illustrative juxtaposition to me, you know, in, in one place here in North America, or at least in the US and Canada, there was like silence for this idea that cultural work could do anything in the struggles of workers. And in South Africa, the exact opposite was true, that just me asking if I could visit resulted in this four-day, you know, 30, 
like 32 hour program that resulted in these incredible poems that were written and this work that was done. So that one to me is really a key example of the difference between the perception of what cultural work can do here and elsewhere. Yeah, and you can and you contextualize that like with additional international examples like our Cardinal or um, Nagugi's work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I did want to before we maybe get into that, I did want to ask maybe a little bit more about because I think this is a good example of you know the uh, like the general motivation to do this. Uh, you did, and this was in the United States. You did manage to have a workshop there prior to going to South Africa, and one of the stories you tell is about a. Uh, a worker there named Denny Dickhausen. And one of the things that struck me about that was you, you wrote that he carried a, a notebook around in his pocket and just like for, for 36 years when he was, you know, working at Ford and he would just write down like observations or, you know, funny things he heard or whatever in the plant. And, you know, it seems like, you know, it hadn't occurred to him to, to write up, write poems until, you know, he had an opportunity in your, in your workshop. Yeah, you know, um, Danny's is such a great story because he did, like, kind of jot things down and wrote about them. And, you know, I'm convinced that there's so many people who do things like this. And so what had really happened is I had been um, head of this political issues committee for the National Writers Union. And people often don't know, but the National Writers Union formed under the umbrella of the UAW. So one of the things I did in our meetings was that I reached out, and this was before the workshops, to the UAW to see if like, we could at least explore what that connection kind of meant in the Twin Cities. And so we started hosting our monthly meetings at the UAW hall. You know, I got to know some of the staff uh, at that UAW local. And because of that connection, when I approached them with this idea of the poetry workshop, they, uh, they agreed, you know, we, they had seen, like we had formed a kind of a, a connection already before that. So they put the ad uh, in their newsletter, the UAW newsletter, uh, the auto worker. And that was how Denny and uh, Joe and some other people in the workshop saw uh, about the article. And so Denny came in and he just like, I think he had, he had been trying to inscribe what life inside that Ford plant was like for so long that for him to move into poetry wasn't that huge of a leap. It was for him kind of because of what he had learned about poetry in school, you know, like, oh, we've got to measure uh, what kind of meter this poem is and learn all these complicated rhyme schemes because it's presented almost like a Rubik's cube in school, right? Uh, that you have to figure out and be tested on rather than let create a space for creativity and political analysis and cultural analysis. Uh, and so once uh, we got beyond that, we said, well, it doesn't matter if it rhymes or not. It doesn't matter, you know, how long the lines are. Here's some different, let's look at it in some different ways. Uh, he turned to it immediately as a way for him to be able to do that. There's a great story in the book about him, you know, like getting this idea, going down in the basement with a cup of tea and working on his poem and his wife saying, what are you doing? And, you know, he's like, well, I'm writing a poem. I'm working on a poem. And she's like, what? What are you, you working on a poem in the basement? Come on. Uh, but, and I, everywhere I've gone to do these workshops, I find people like Denny, you know, people who have had a desire to try to say something, put something down, but no structures to do that within, no space that was like 
helpful for them to be able to do that. Uh, and I know that one of the groups I worked with uh, in the UK, Justice for Domestic Workers, so now called the Voice of Domestic Workers, but they have continued to do like creative writing workshops, have people write poems and use those at rallies and in their newsletters and in their social media. Uh, and it's, it's one of the great things to see. We do that as well with Domestic Workers United in New York City. They're, the domestic workers are always using poetry as part of their, as part of their, uh, you know, solidarity building and resistance movement. And uh, it, it's a form that I think really lends itself well. Uh, you know, we have workshops with members in New York City of lots of different organizations. And there are, there are always people within those organizations who have a desire to write. And, you know, we want to be a space to, to be able to make that happen. Yeah, and you've also tried to use it as a way to build, I guess, transnational solidarity between some of these workers. I remember, I think later in the in the story, later in the work, there's this uh, story about you know working with domestic workers in New York and also having domestic workers in I think the UK, as you were just mentioning, like on video conference as as they're you know workshopping together. Yeah, yeah. There's a. Uh... There's really, I think, an, an important need. And the Ford plant was a, the first kind of example of this, is that, you know, management has endless opportunities to get together and have conversations about economics and work and what's happening, right? Like Ford factories or whatever, Apple or Google, people get to, the management gets together all the time and can talk about what's going on. But I think people had said, like, in that South Africa workshop, that that was the first time in South Africa they had ever seen a worker from the United States, heard on video another worker from another country talking about their work. And similarly, in Minnesota, you know, the, the opinion, even among the workforce, was that workers in places like South Africa and India and China were, quote-unquote, stealing their jobs. So to be able to see and hear a worker in South Africa say, you know, we are facing very similar conditions from management, right? Similar rules, similar job loss, similar worries. And, you know, we'd like to bond together with you uh, is, is really an important moment, I think. And, and there, are, there are very few spaces for that to happen on like a worker-to-worker -worker level. Uh, and so that's been one of the, one of the things I've really... Uh, has inspired me about seeing these these kinds of transnational conversations happen. Yeah, and you mentioned a few times too that uh, you know the bosses weren't super happy about the workers, you know, doing this. And you know, historically, you know, you write about you know the, like you were saying in St. Paul, the first things, the first workshops happening in uh, the Union Hall, and this, the importance of you know space that is you know I think owned by workers. Something we talked about on this podcast before the importance of having that space because you know it's obviously not going to happen in the workplace if uh or rather it's certainly going to happen on certain terms in the workplace yeah and and one idea is how do we create spaces that you know the poetry community and the community of workers feel comfortable coming to together you know like so often we have conferences about you know poetry and well like this podcast poetry and marxism but they happen inside the university and that's a space that's completely unwelcoming to the working class right and so uh, we've always pushed like 
with that, you know, we did this bookstore union organizing uh, assembly kind of a conference. And we did it at a union hall on Lake Street that's actually not far at all, uh, a few blocks really, from where that precinct house was and where the uprising was in, in Minneapolis. But it was on a public transportation route. It was one building that was, you just walk through the front door and you're in the conference. Uh, you didn't have to struggle to find on-campus parking or, you know, like, what, how can we move to create some kind of new alternative spaces in which people from different sectors feel really com both comfortable and energized about coming together in those spaces to have these conversations. You know, you, one other thing you, you write about in order to like contextualize this project is, uh, uh, you know, working. And I think this is an important thing to, to talk about is working with, uh, the unionization and a unionization effort at borders in the Twin Cities uh, in the early in the early aughts, I think it was to you know <laughs> to try and get better wages out of borders, and, and you know it it seems to me that oftentimes writers sometimes <laughs> don't you know think about the conditions of the workers who either produce the work or, or sell it, and you know you were working with a group that was you know against retail nihilism as, as it as it was was called mm -hmm. yeah you know and the funny thing that to kind of bring that circle all the way back around is right before uh covid19 hit new york city i had been meeting with some workers to start a new workshop uh that was from workers who were trying to unionize their bookstores in new york city and so there was a group from mcnally jackson bookstore uh, there was going to be a group from uh, another bookstore uh, in the city and uh, Housing Works bookstore. And then our goal was to try to do some meetings and then go to Book Expo and do a writing workshop within, like kind of get a space within Book Expo somehow to do a writing workshop for booksellers uh, in the Book Expo to try to continue this, you know, this thing from... 20 years ago now almost, uh, at the border store to see the ways in which workers are still, you know, struggling to make a living wage as booksellers. Uh, and yeah, like to try, like, how do we get writers involved in this as well? Because, you know, when we did those first ones uh, in the Borders bookstore, it was really difficult to get writers to come out and support the protests, support, you know, we would be leafleting and flyering outside of the store. We do different kinds of events. And it, it was often really difficult other than to get more than, you know, a handful. And by handful, I mean like under five other writers to, uh, to show up to those events. I, I think the climate has changed a little bit today. You know, uh, it's a little different now than it was in those days. And I hope uh, there's a kind of a larger contingent of writers who would who would show up to things like that. Uh, but it was very um, kind of depressing back when we were trying to do it to see how little uh, writers cared about those who were actively working on, you know, the the distribution and sale of their books. Yeah, and I, I guess I did want to ask, like specifically, are you are you more optimistic about about the present than you know than, than the past? Oh, I'm absolutely more optimistic. I mean, what we've seen in the streets uh, in recent weeks has been uh, completely inspiring. Back in my old hometown uh, of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I, I feel like you know a, a conversation like this and a podcast like this didn't exist in 2004. You know, when I first did the workshops in South Africa and in 
uh, elsewhere. You know, it, I, it felt very like almost outside the literary community. And I see uh, in outside the kind of that connection between the kind of cultural workers and the, the social movement workers. I feel like there's a bit more of that today and more people are interested. I just had a similar conversation um, like this with a great group of young uh, writers and activists in Miami, Poetry for the People Miami, uh, who are also part of Dream Defenders. And, you know, it's, uh, it's good to see more interest and more action along these lines than we did back in the early 2000s. Yeah, there's definitely been an increase in, in action since the early 2000s. And, you know, like to tie it back to the, the workshops, you've uh, hosted workshops in like a number of different union, like unionization efforts, whether it was like we've talked about the domestic workers, but you've also worked with um, taxi drivers in New York. And like we were mentioning in, in South Africa as well. And I guess one thing I wanted to ask you about that is, you know, how, like, how has that, doing that changed, like, over the years? Because it, it does seem to me that unions have become much more militant over the, over the previous several years. And, you well, know, like, the, the taxi is a good example. But no, go on. Yeah, well, I, I think that the working class has become more militant. I'm not sure if unions have. Uh, I, these days, at least, I do very little work with specifically trade unions in the United States, and I work much more extensively with the worker center movement, and these are kind of much smaller uh, member-led organizations. Uh, so Domestic Workers United would be an example of this, right? They had been organizing for a Bill of Rights in New York State. They were the group that got the first Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers uh, in the United States, signed into law by the previous governor, Governor Patterson. And then right after that happened was around the time of Occupy Wall Street in the city. And I got uh, connected with one of their main organizers and told them about these workshops I had been doing in, in South Africa and elsewhere. And they were really interested in the idea of having a workshop like that for domestic workers. And then we slowly built out to include each year uh, more worker centers. So the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, we have members from Picture the Homeless, from uh, the Street Vendor Project, and others. But we don't have, we don't have members from, you know, SEIU or, or groups like that. Um, we've tried to do some outreach, and there really hasn't been uh, any expressed interest. Uh, I hope that may change in the future. Uh, but, but for now, it's, it's, not really true that there's a, a kind of a trade union interest in this. There is at the kind of uh, worker center level, which is fine by me. But I would love to have, for example, some of the um, nurses and healthcare workers or uh, janitors and door people at, from SEIU in these workshops. I think they'd be a great addition to, to what we do and would really you know, help build the solidarity between these groups that are sometimes in competition, you know, trade union worker center, one with dues paying members and others that are fundraising at a much more grassroots horizontal level. Yeah. Um, something you write, you quote, uh, Raymond Williams in your, in your book saying, uh, imagination has a history. Mm. And I guess, yeah. And I guess one of the things too, that we should talk about is, um, I guess the, the history of imagination as mm, through through these workshops 
and you you go back to the 60s and write about the workshops of like june jordan and kenneth coke and all that and maybe maybe you could uh like which like why like why the 60s for you as a place to to start that that narrative well to me that becomes one of the the places where the the notion of it as a workshop organized specifically as a writer's workshop uh, comes in into play it's also when at least in the united states a lot of uh, as juliana's book talks about a lot of state and federal and institutional funding starts coming in and one of the things i try to suggest in the book is that that there's a kind of a suppression or erasure of these more uh radical workshops so for example you know june jordan's work and there's a section where i talk about her work versus kenneth coke's wishes lies and dreams and in that book, it's like this kind of radical agency that's in the poems that emerge out of Jordan's workshops aren't there in that wishes, lies, and dreams tradition. And then the state arts agencies kind of pick up wishes, lies, and dreams as a model for how to do a creative writing workshops in K-12 schools. And the archives I looked at, which were some books that I have, but also you know, online you can find a number of those 1970s anthologies from Poets in the Schools Arkansas and Poets in the Schools South Carolina and elsewhere, that they're just, they're stuffed with wish poems, lies poems, and dream poems that, you know, they're imaginatively playful and, you know, surrealistically, like technically kind of a surrealistic wordplay and things like that, which is a good, you know, it's a starting point, especially I would say for, for really young kids. But Jordan's book shows really how the poem in at that level can simultaneously be about like what's happening in your neighborhood and police and you know about racial hatred between groups and and racism and it can be about those things too like you can dream and talk about the bad food at your lunch at your public school but you can also talk about you know how the cops killed someone on your block and you're afraid like that's a good that the poem is a great place to kind of think that through as a young person and and analyze it and share it with others and so so that institutionalization seems to be um a real big problem in in that early history and so i try to document some of that some of those problems you know the split in the watts group uh those with ed schulberg and those who are in quincy troops kind of more politicized uh, uh writing workshop uh and some other places like that as well yeah and you take that history too and you know continue on by discussing anthologies of work in south africa and work in Nicaragua and you know I, I just like want to say too like there's very like sometimes these kind of anthologies get promoted or people like them but it's very it's very rare that you see them taken up as like serious like the <laughs> serious poetry that you can do any kind of theorizing about and that includes even some more recent ones like the Iron Moon one of uh, worker poets in China and you, but you, on the other hand, are trying, I think, to really include all that, all that work that oftentimes people will acclaim, but not really discuss outside of the anthology itself. Yeah, I mean, to me, there felt like a really strong need for that to happen. And as I say in the anthology, this, there's now at least a 50-year history of these workshops happening 
in moments of uprising, rebellion, political strife around the country and, and around the world. And, and I hope that this is just the start of people starting to look at these because I'm sure there's so many archives of similar work elsewhere around the world. And so I, I think it, it has to be part of the conversation, right? And it, actually, I think it almost needs to be a little bit more central part of the conversation. Like, what does the poetry workshop allow for us to, to do as, as working people, as, as uh, you know, black people, as Asian, Native American, people who have been suppressed within a system, who have been who have been forced to live under this kind of police state that we, that we are seeing today. And as young people, they had been part of workshops. They had been, I had been in a, uh, a poet at a school in Minneapolis, uh, right near the American Indian Center, for uh, Native American kids who had been kicked out of the public school system. And I taught a year-long poetry workshop there, and they produced incredible poetry. And that poetry is nowhere documented in, in the history of, that, uh, of those neighborhoods and those communities. I know a poet, um, Ellison Hedgecoke, who had run for a long time uh, poets in the schools and poets in the, in the prisons uh, creative writing workshop program uh, by correspondence for incarcerated Native American youth. And she did incredible work on that for for many, many years, and it's not something that's gotten really any critical attention so far. And, and so I want to try to continue to, to research and dig into these kind of workshops, uh, like Allison's workshops and like other workshops that have been doing this kind of work for, for decades uh, that has not gotten any attention, really, uh, in the literary community. Yeah, and that's reflected, too. I think in when you do these workshops you write about uh how you like in addition to say using poems by like say tilly olson or you know you know famous and established poets you off you also use as prompts works by you know the workers themselves works from other workshops you've you've conducted where you know uh, you've gotten poems you, you're basically asking workers to come like react to poems written by other workers, which I think is not something that you often see in the workshop model. Yeah, well, you know, we've been doing this year, for example, we started out really, uh, in September looking at the haiku, right, and trying to find a kind of more, more radical haiku tradition. Uh, and so we started out with a, a Hiroaki Sato, who had a new book called On Haiku from New Directions. He came to our first uh, assembly at the People's Forum. And like Bill Ayers were there giving talks, uh, Ruthie Gilmore. Uh, and he gave an opening workshop on the, the tradition of haiku and some prompts for the workers. And then in the months that followed, we started reading, you know, we read uh, uh, the Japanese-American internment camp haiku. We read Sonia Sanchez. We read uh, Amiri Baraka's Loku. Uh, we read there are some haiku in the Attica anthology, uh, and we read and talked about those and worked from those poems. And then the coronavirus um, hit New York City in March, and our last workshop was on March seventh. And you know, it was like we were doing like elbow bumps and hand sanitizer rather than hugs. People come in, which are which is closer to normal. And we started working on these. Uh, coronavirus 
Irish haikus, not knowing, of course, what would uh, happen later in March and April and May. Uh, and so they've become a vehicle now. Like, people have a really strong and wide range uh, knowledge of the history of the haiku, right? Going back to, to Basho and Isa, but also looking at modern uh, Japanese haiku from, there's a great book called Modern Japanese Haiku that includes a lot of, from the period of uh, early factory work. And so there are, are workers who are talking about smokestacks and the trains uh, taking supplies in and out. And then this whole kind of unique American tradition of haiku from, you know, Attica to uh, Sonia Sanchez. And so they've been writing because, of course, all our workers are what are today called frontline workers, taxi drivers, domestic workers, restaurant workers. Uh, we have a worker who's at the booth uh, of the subway, the subway booth worker for the MTA. And they've been documenting what it's like to live through coronavirus and then all the uprisings uh, after events in Minneapolis. And so they've been documenting it from their perspective uh, all this time. But like you say, it's because they have this really wide breadth of the haiku, right? Like most people think haiku, oh, you know, we wrote those in fifth grade, or that's a kind of Japanese tradition of basho and others. But there's this really wide-ranging history of them. Etheridge Knight, we looked at Etheridge Knight's haiku uh, and others. And so we're there, I feel like we're writing from this really kind of broad historical cultural range of the haiku and what it has done and how it has been used from everybody to from canonized poets to poets who are part of, of prison writing workshops. I guess one thing too I want to ask in this context is, you know, you've had a lot of experience running these kind of workshops. Like I guess what kind of what kind of advice would you have about about running one of these kind of workshops? Yeah, well I always get the advice question. I'm never quite sure how to answer it. But, but a couple of things I always say is that, A, this has to be, uh, if you're going to do it, at least equal to your poetic practice or even greater than your poetic practice. I think it, 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 it can't be something that you kind of dip into and try and do a short workshop and then... That's, you know, uh, and then you get back to editing your manuscript or whatever. Like for us, it's really been about it becoming a durational practice. We'll, in September, we'll be entering the year of the Worker Writers School in collaboration with Penn America at, in New York City. And so this is like a continuing thing that we see as, as being around for a long time. Uh, so that would be uh, a part of it. The second one is that um, one of the things that I think makes the Worker Writer School unique um, is that we are not essentially a creative writing workshop, a literary practice. We are uh, like a worker center, a part of the social movement that uses the literary practice of the creative writing workshop to build solidarity. Uh, and so one, you know, like there have been some other organizations that have had like uh, fairy tale writing class for nannies, you know, at the library. Um, but I've always said that what distinguishes what we do is we are in collaboration with the worker center. So, for example, if you're a domestic worker who comes into our workshop and you start writing about your situation at work, right, and how difficult it is, we'll have members from the worker center there at workshop who will say, well, we passed a bill of rights and this shouldn't be happening to you at the workplace. Right, and this is a great poem. We love how you, 
you know, we love this line break, we love this image, we love this metaphor and image that you use, but you shouldn't be being treated that way at work. And here, by law, are some of the protections that you have as a domestic worker, right? Or if you're part of the Taxi Workers Alliance or the Street Vendor Project, we are connected to organizers in, the, uh, in those organizations that we can connect people with immediately to address the situations that people are talking about in their poems. And so to me, that's a really key feature that's built into the workshop. So I say that if you want to do these things, uh, one is kind of check out your reasons for doing it and make sure you're going to give the kind of dedication to this that you give to your own artistic practice. Uh, practice. And to me, this is my artistic practice. At now, this is what I consider it to be, uh, do, organizing these workshops and facilitating them. Uh, two, make sure that you're in it for the long haul uh, and you have a kind of commitment and dedication to, to making sure this is part of a, you, that you're really like opening a space for this to happen for the long term. Uh, and then C, that, that, that building that bridge to organizations, I think is really, really essential. Well, two things. One, I guess one thing to start first is, um, you know, oftentimes it feels like Poetry Now is, on sometimes oftentimes it's uh, about monetizing your trauma in some ways i think that that's a very insidious part of poetry sometimes now and uh i think having the the ability and the structures to ask to say to a writer when you know they're describing something that's awful in their life like you have like in this con like in the context you were talking about like you have rights under the domestic workers <laughs> bill of rights is something that is just completely absent to poetry now and, mm. and like and that's i guess in one on one hand and one major reason why making these kind of connections with workers and you know though these worker centers like you're saying is is important because it offers a way to redress some of the many issues that you see raised in, in poetry when you try and make it like political or discuss the workplace or whatever yeah, it's, it's having that, I mean, in a certain way, it's that old Joe Hill uh, motto, right? Don't mourn, organize. And so we, we take this moment of, of artistic creation and we turn it uh, into a way to resist and struggle. Uh, and to me, that's a, a really important turn to make. Uh, it, it's important. You know, I, I, I do a lot in the book about this this kind of connection I'm trying to think through of, of the relationship between self-determination and collective action, right? And so, like, how do we have spaces that simultaneously allow you to speak your truth to power, right? To, to talk about often very traumatic things that happen uh, to us in our lives while simultaneously allowing that to then cross over into a space for addressing that, right? Filing a lawsuit against that, getting together with other workers in a worker center, that doing a campaign like this vast campaign I described by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance and fight against Uber and Lyft and other rideshare applications, including, you know, poetry reading as part of a rally on the steps of New York City Hall. Like, how do we, how do, we do both of those things? Because I think too often, or, 
there's like a people push for one or the other, right? Like the poetry doesn't matter. We got to do the action or the collecting action is important, but I need to be able to write my truth, right? And so uh, what we're arguing, I think, at the Worker Writers School is that both of those need to be in place, right? And we even do, we even do, we do poems as individuals, but we do group poems. We look at, at, at forums like the Renga or some other uh, forms that are in there where everybody gets to write and collaborate on pieces together because this is a, this is a, a way of writing. It's a way of building solidarity. It's a way of hearing about, about, about what other workers are experiencing and going through. We have this great, I don't think it's in the book. I should put it in the book, but I had to cut a lot out of the book. But anyway, there's a, there was one in particular where there was a, one of the taxi drivers was talking having to take someone out to one of the, the far late at night after the bar is closed. And this person, like, jumping out of the cab at the end and running, and him losing, like, at that point, a while ago, it was like a $70 fare. Uh, and how, like, that just killed his whole evening because it took so long to drive there. It took him so long to drive back. He made nothing for it. He had expenses through the gas or whatever, uh, and time in particular. And then one of the domestic workers... Uh, said that she had one time been uh, with some kids in uh, Central Park for a concert and started pouring rain. And she didn't bring her, she only brought her uh, Metro card and had forgotten her wallet. And so she needed to get a cab because that was the only way for her to get home at that point. And she knew she had the money, but she couldn't tell the taxi driver that. So the taxi driver took her home and she said, uh, just wait here, i got to run upstairs, get the money. And that taxi driver was probably feeling, of course, like the person who told the story uh, before that, that started this all. And, uh, but he said, okay, and she went up, got the money, and came down and paid him. And I was like, you two should write a poem together about this. And they did. And so they wrote this poem that was like a back-and-forth dialogue poem of the taxi worker and the domestic worker, each with these uh, uh, different takes on the process of exchanging the fare and what that means to both of them, what that meant to two stories to both of them. And then they've gone on to perform it. Like they did a, a reading of it on WBAI radio. They read it at one of the Penrose Voices festivals. They've done a couple other readings of it since then. And it's this really great poem that allows you to see two different workers' perspectives on this story about, about cab fare. Yeah, I guess like one thing to ask about that is you know you talk about writing collective poems and you give examples of that throughout the book and whether it's again you just said the one in new york I, there's one in here from south africa but you know it, it seems to me that oftentimes poets are afraid of the sort of collective authorship that you're encouraging in these workshops and i guess you know do you think like collective poems in that way are, are another like method of you know engaging in this kind of work well you know i mean it it depends on their purpose, right? I think that if it's a couple of writers trying to just aesthetically explore something and collaborate, that's one thing. If it's two people trying to build cultural capital by working together, that's another thing. If it's, in our case, workers from different uh, sectors, you know, two different, what again, today we call essential workers. Right? You know, that's such a problematic term to unpack. but you know, uh, for them to work together was a way for both themselves and the audience to see, like, you know, 
I mean, if you come to certain parts of, of New York, Manhattan, Brooklyn, etc., you will you will endlessly see uh, Caribbean uh, and other uh, women of color working as nannies uh, and pushing around white babies. Right? It's like everywhere in New York City, and the domestic workers have really been trying to find spaces to to talk about this situation, uh, and the workshop has become one of those. So for the one domestic worker who is taking uh, people's kids to the concert in Central Park, you know, she is trying to communicate something about a lack of trust in her as someone who would have the money at home. And the taxi driver is talking about, you know, another predicament in which he is working like day to day in order to try to make his enough to be able to live in New York City, uh, which is almost impossible. And and what that means for someone to break that trust, right, for him. And so we see two different sides of trust operating and them coming to a kind of an agreement, the two, the two writers, and coming closer to like, uh, like oh yeah, I, I, can, I do see your side and I see your side. And uh, it's a beautiful way in which that, that moment of solidarity happens that might not have been there before the poem started. And to me, that's a completely different reason for trying to write together collectively. Well, well not to change the subject, but what, one thing I did want to ask about, and I said uh, uh, this is to return to the second thing I wanted to ask a, a couple of questions ago, but when you were talking about um, like advice about running these writers' workshops, one thing you mentioned is uh, this is doing these workshops is your creative practice now. And I mm -hmm. guess in the past, your work had been mostly not all, exclusively obviously but one of the i think ways people most people knew you would have been through um docu documentary uh <laughs> poetics and you know is are you still like are you still interested in in that documentary style or you know is this as you said or is this you know the new the new creative practice for you well you know here's the thing is that i had been doing both of these things all along and documentary poetry had a couple of books, right? Shut Up, Shut Down, Coal Mountain Elementary. Like, it was, that was publicly evident, uh, that arm of practice. But there was this other one happening all along. I taught, when I went to get my MFA uh, at Bowling Green uh, in the late 1980s, one of the great opportunities I had was that they had a class which was simply, uh, you became a poet in residence class at one of the local schools. And I was able to go and start uh, teaching. I taught in a middle school classroom uh, in Bowling Green, Ohio. Uh, and once a week, I'd go in and do poetry workshops. And we do all kinds of little cut-up experiments and chance-generated poems, like, you know, very kind of Jackson McClough kind of experiments and things. It was so much fun to do that. And then I continued doing that all along and had been doing these things. But there wasn't, I hadn't really, uh, in any kind of large-scale way, written about it or about the worker writing school and these workshops that have been going on since 2005, 2006. So, so I, I feel like that uh, arm of the practice is taking over now, that my interest in, quote-unquote, the documentary isn't putting myself in a position of speaker of those documents, like I'm the one who found them, organized them, put them out but uh, undermining, but instead trying to locate, as I do in the first chapters of this book, or as I do in my next book, like trying to find 
documents of how the poetry workshop has functioned in these moments of insurrection, uprising, worker struggle, etc. So it's in a way, social poetics feels not documentary poetry, but in a, another way, I think it's, it's still really invested in the document, the archive. It's just trying to put I, I felt with the other kind of documentary, it, it never quite, it never gained enough agency to really shift larger conversations, right? It became like it documented, you know, the deindustrialization or documented uh, mining uh, in the US and China, but it, it wasn't like, it didn't, produce the kind of conversation and ultimately the kind of chain that I wanted to see happen. Right. So, you know, rather than, rather than talking about like, say who has the agency in these poems, you're talking more about like the agency to actually affect change in the world uh, in, in terms of these poems and then the practice in which they're written, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, as author of the documentary poem, you know, or book or whatever. It's, you are still in the authorship position. Uh, I'm trying to, like I always say that if you're really an activist, you should eventually disappear, right? You should like, you, you should do it so well that eventually either the, the what you're being active about is won or transformed or changed, or You've, you've allowed others to take enough leadership role in the project to be able to kind of back away from it over time, right? And so one of the things we do a lot in school is try to now, in addition to having people be uh, authors in the workshop, is to have them be organizers of the workshop, to be like the MC and organizer of readings and events that we do, to have some members who will now go out and like maybe lead a K through 12 poetry workshop, right? That the worker writer school becomes a, a ground, uh, like a, like a, well, a school for them to be able to take over these kind of leadership uh, responsibilities uh, as activists, organizers, and writers. And so that's really what I think we're, we're looking for in, in the school. Right. And something you'd written a while ago that, Stuck, stuck, stuck with me over the years was you were quoting uh, or talking about the work uh, Pierre Bourdieu. Uh, oh, I almost said facing reality, but <laughs> different, different theory, different group, uh, right? Uh, different, much different. But Pierre Bourdieu um, firing back, I think it was. You talk about changing the relationship between for Bourdieu, it was between a researcher, like sociologist, and you know the subject of the studies. But you're taught you talked about then about changing the relationship between you know poets poets and readers and would you say that this is part of that practice too yeah you know i've really been interesting i mean you're you're kind of slipped there with a great one to facing reality is that i've always been uh interested in like what what a kind of a small uh organization can do a small rat, progressive radical organization right and so like the facing reality group with uh Grace Lee Boggs and uh, Jim, Jimmy Boggs and others, right? And like their idea and CLR James uh, and that whole group, like 
going into factories in Detroit, you know, like doing kind of deep political study, meeting together in groups. There's a great book called Conversations in Maine, uh, which is a, a record of conversations that Grace and Jimmy and their friends had uh, up in Maine. I think the University of Minnesota Press just recently re-released it. It's available again uh, in print. And so the Worker Writers School then becomes one of these spaces for like what happens if we try to create an alternative space in which workers can come together with writers, as writers, and as organizers, and they bring, you know, what kind of training they have as organizers. We have brought in, I have brought in, uh, uh, you know, like we do these these bigger programs. We did them a few times on silent. We do like a summer school or a open, we call them open house. We kind of borrow this language from education. And we always have like, you know, it'll be Patricia Smith and Vijay Prashad. Uh, it'll be Rigoberto Gonzalez and Joy Jane. It'll be this always this combination of like theorist, scholar. We've had people who have been lead organizers at these different organizations speaking on panels with a poet and a Marxist theorist, right? So that we always have this like you know we all, we use the phrase now cross genre. We have this kind of cross disciplinary approach to how we use writing as a platform for both our own, like what we want to say about our lives and how we build power together. And I've just been looking at um, an interview from a few years ago you did with um, Zane Al-Seuss in The New Inquiry. And like, I guess part of like, this is going back to something we were talking about earlier, but, you know, she had asked uh, about... Uh, how poets and writers can, you know, embed and become and make themselves accountable to a broader working class. And, you know, one of the things at the very end there, you talk about, uh, like, you, you just mentioned that there's so much work out there, like the Iron Moon, or like, the anthologies that came out, came out, that came out of South Africa that we were talking about earlier. And you, you mentioned that there's, that there's like so much out there. And we, we, we did touch on this earlier, the, the fact that there is so much out there and that it, it is critically sort of ignored. But I guess what I want to ask about that in, in this context is, uh, you know, how like that sort of, I guess, accountability to to the broad, like to the social movements that you're that the poet is hopefully a part of. Like we talked about I've talked to Wendy Trevino on this podcast in the past. And, you know, she mentions like that one of the things that's really liberated her in the sort of poetic sphere is, is not being accountable to the same institutions that really the rest of the poetry world is. It, it really makes things, certain things sayable that for, I guess, under normal circumstances aren't sayable. So uh, were you gonna say something? No, I'm just listening to where you're, uh, where you're headed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's all coming together. No, uh, (laughs) but I guess, I guess I just wanted to ask like, you know, like how how do you see I guess accountability in these in these spaces? Yeah, I, I'm not really in them, right? So I, I I don't really have any accountability to them in, in a way. I think uh, a couple of things that you know uh, both Wendy and Zena, who you mentioned, are both great examples of of why I'm feeling uh, optimistic uh, about where poetry is headed. Uh, Zena was part of that conversation with. Uh, Poetry for the People of Miami that I had mentioned earlier, uh, and both are doing just such phenomenal work, I think. 
Uh, and the Zena um, conversation that you mentioned was really interesting because it it kind of is an illustration of what I was talking about about you know the Patricia Smith and Vijay Prashad example. So in that conversation, she was like, "Oh, well, let's have this talk." And I was like, "Well, what about if we brought in Christine Lewis from Domestic Workers United and the workers who I helped organize the Borders Bookstore with, both of who are involved in kinds." Uh, Active activism, you know, one is a part of an education trade union, another is uh, uh, part of a kind of a prison abolition movement uh, today. Uh, and so that was an example of like, we, we should all be having this together. Uh, that just for me to have that conversation alone is against kind of what we do uh, at the Worker Writers School. And, and I don't think that's always true in the literary organization. There's a there's a, a push to like kind of push cultural capital up to the top of the pyramid, and we are very inspired. I am particularly very inspired by uh, by by stuff like the the workers' movement in Argentina, horizontal organizing that they work through. Marina Citrin has really written uh, and collected a lot of that uh, that stuff in in very important ways, and you know the kind of like the kind of organizing that. Today, you know, the way Minneapolis uprising—that is, you know, really questioning the role uh, of institutions in, in a way that, you know, it's been questioned before, but but not, I think, with the the ferocity and and the strength that it's that it's happening today. So, you know, the institution has a lot to answer for, and the little statements that everybody is releasing about how they stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, I think are ringing hollow to, to a lot of us out here. Uh, and so, you know, the institution is, is on the table now as something that is not going to be allowed to function in the way that it's functioned in the past. I mean, this, even uh, in the poetry community, what's happened, been happening at the Poetry Foundation. Uh, and so, so, you know, the institution has a has a lot to answer to uh, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I guess. Well, let me let me just say I have to say this because it's you know I, because it's going it is going to bother me if I don't. But I was ro- logging in to play the video game Rocket League yesterday, and uh, they and on the I believe I button mash until I get to the start menu because I don't want to see any of the the like bullshit like about who made this like all the all the stuff like in the loading menu or whatever. But I believe I fast forwarded through a statement, like um, <laughs> a statement from the video game rocket league about black lives matter that they inserted at the beginning of their game, which is, which, which was just like, Whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but I, I, something I should ask you mm-hmm. about uh, is that, you know, we saw this with the, the poetry foundation recently and, you know, a number of writers have come together and put out a statement trying to, you know, demand changes and threatening to withhold labor if they do not if the poetry foundation does not make changes i guess like what do you what do you make of that of that kind of organizing i guess is something i feel like i should ask you as someone who's been trying to do it for a long time yeah i mean in a certain way uh i'm not really on that uh in that sphere anymore you know i, I feel like the organizing now trying to 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 really think about different 
right, to think about different kinds of spaces. And I was just having a conversation, you know, before everything went down in Minneapolis with a group there that was trying to think about, like, should there be a more like a cultural workers union, or as I was suggesting, a cultural uh, workers worker center, like where at our role as artists can be uh, analyzed and we can have a space to talk about like, like what this sort of means. And I know I'm going to have another um, conversation, I think, in two weeks or something like that with uh, Natalie Diaz and Christine Lewis about this need for alternative kinds of, of spaces, right? So for me, I look at something like, um, like Cooperation Jackson uh, as, as a really f incredible example here in the United States about, about how we can organize ourselves uh, without institutions in, in a different kind of way, you know, that, that what Cooperation Jackson doing is, uh, I think it's just a, a phenomenal model that, that we should study really closely uh, and, and think about really significantly. And I just had joked on uh, Ken Chen's <laughs> Facebook page or Twitter feed, I can't remember, that you know, he posted that, the article came out in Viewpoints a few days ago about it, and it got like, I think after an hour, I was the second person to like it. Uh, and so like, if you as a writer post something like this incredibly important uh, article uh, about the work that Cooperation Jackson is doing, it, it, like, it doesn't resonate in the writing. And, uh, and that's, that's problematic for me. So, so what I'm really looking for, and I'm glad people are doing this that they're doing, and I signed that uh that petition that was going around about you know the leadership of the poetry foundation because i think it is important to uh to make that change but but i'm putting in a new leader uh of uh of an that is one kind of place where people are acting but i'm more interested in looking at truly alternative models to that kind of thinking and I think, again, Cooperation Jackson and, and some other places are really important examples of that. I think I've been truly inspired by the work of Domestic Workers United as a, as a worker-led organization that is not a kind of top-down leadership, executive, director, 501c3, board of director institution. I think, I think hopefully, I wish, I hope, that, uh, the, that those kinds of institutions are... are uh, seeing their twilight in the years to come yeah for sure and like and something else we should shout out too is the you know again the work that's going on in minneapolis you know they mm -hmm. took over a took over a hotel out there yes <laughs> they collected exactly. the hotel yeah that's exactly the kind of cool stuff i think you're talking about mm -hmm. you know you write about i guess I, well i want to ask you specifically about this so you know one of the things you talk about in here is your experience in argentina in the, I think it would have been like 2005 or so. Mm -hmm. I, maybe, maybe I just ask you to, to maybe explain because I'm going to get the details wrong. Like, what was going on then? Because you, you were in Argentina at the time. Like, what was going on there and how did that come to influence this? Yeah, so there was an economic collapse in Argentina and, uh, you know, the, the country went through like a series of presidents in like three weeks or something like that. And what happened was that, and people may know about this already like Naomi Klein's film, The Take, uh, which covers this, or no Marina Citrin's books or, or others' books. But uh, when the economy collapsed and factories closed, workers decided to organize 
to occupy the factories, uh, take them over, and produce uh, in the factories themselves without bosses. Uh, so I visited several of these uh, with my wife uh, in Argentina. The most famous one, uh, which had been called Zanon before, uh, Factory Without Bosses. Uh, we visited there. Um, we visited uh, the Bruckman Textile Factory, these uh, incredible schools that were taken over by workers, uh, and elsewhere. And the biggest, uh, the big, one that had the biggest influence on me and really in starting the, the Worker Writer School was a, a factory called Impa uh, in Buenos Aires that had, uh, they produced like uh, aluminum products, like tubes for paint and toothpaste and, and other kinds of things as well. And so when that factory uh, was closed by its owner, the workers decided to take it over, uh, occupy it, and then start reproducing the work. And when they did this, cultural organizations and cultural workers and other communities all came out to support them and make sure the cops didn't come in and you know, bust it all up and give it back to the owner. And so when we were there, uh, after it reopened, you could walk around this, I mean, picture this kind of massive aluminum producing factory line, uh, very kind of, you know, harsh kind of workplace, as you would imagine. Uh, and within there, there were rooms, there was uh, a pottery. So like in your break at work, you could go in. The potters who had helped uh, support the workers were given a little bit of space in the factory. And there was like a people's lending library, a place where you could do yoga, dance, right? And so to me, this was like this, you know, like this beautiful merging of the industrial worker and the cultural worker in a space that said, you know, that yes, at work you should be able to like come home with a you know, uh, Eduardo Galliano to work. You should be able to make cups for your house on your break in the pottery studio. You should be able and or on your break to take a yoga class and then to go back to work. But all of these were worker led, worker organized, and we're not like a, a uh, you know, like a not-for-profit had come in, give uh, workshops to the, to the workers that it had developed organically and horizontally within the factory. And so that, to me, was a, a huge inspiration uh, in deciding to, you know, go from what I had been doing with poets in the schools and, and poets in the prisons to trying to create a space similar to that for workers to have an opportunity to take a free class uh, and to take a workshop. Yeah, and the reason, and so the reason I asked you that in the context of what we, we had just been talking about with um, what I asked about the Poetry Foundation and your response and your response to it was, um, I guess I wanted to ask, like, you mentioned wanting, like, you know, like, uh, worker centers for maybe writers. And I guess, like, what, what do you think, so, like, that could accomplish like what do you hope that something like that would accomplish were to come into ex existence because you know i guess with reference to like what we were just talking about going on in argentina yeah i i don't th actually don't think there should be worker centers for writers. i i don't i'm not a huge fan of the sectoring off of of one particular group instead i would love to see spaces that are organized around the kind of worker center model but might include like the Argentina example, like what would happen if around the table, even at, let's say, a college or university, right? 
like is the creative writing workshop had people who put themselves in the frame of like I'm a writer versus uh, not versus with uh, like a couple people who work in the cafeteria and kitchen and one of the security guards and then some abolitionists who um, all get together student abolitionists who are you know taking classes and writing papers and getting degrees and what if all these people came together at one table and had a creative writing workshop what would that mean you know and it's one of these things that i have read a lot of paulo freire uh and freire always talks about like you can't have a conversation where it's just administrators and teachers right you have to have a conversation that includes the entire school community and so i kind of try to think through that model as a model for the workshop as well like what are the you know, freire had this incredible love of uh of janitors and the cleaning staff. And he now, I have this little file of how in each almost of his books, or many of his books at least, he always has a story about uh, the janitor and uh, integral role in understanding how the school functions, where its failures are, where its promises are. And they remain a totally, they are never the conversation because in a class society, they are thought uh, to be people who clean and not think. Uh, and so Freire really tries to flip that, right, and say, well, what if the uh, principal cleaned bathroom, the cleaning staff, uh, led the conversation about the direction of the school? What would that mean? How would our schools look different? And so to me, that's just a beautiful model of what we kind of try to do in the worker writer school. Like, we are a space in which, you know, the taxi driver and the domestic worker, street vendor and the retail store worker are all both producing culture and having conversations about how to grow uh, our solidarity and transform society. And to me, that's a, that's a beautiful kind of space. And we have writers and political theorists and others who come and join us and join in that conversation and share their knowledge with us so that we can build power. Like we, this brings us back, I guess, to what I was asking earlier with Bordeaux, and I think Frere is also someone who gets at this. Like his one of his main points is like you know you don't want to, as a teacher, like you can't you can't he calls it the banking model of education, but like you can't right. treat uh you can't treat like the people you're trying to teach as like subjects. You have to have a different relationship there. And this is you know this is I think an important question. So I'm gonna I think I'm gonna ask you to get in this context, like you know, how, like, changing that relationship is, is very difficult. And, you know, I think oftentimes writers have that banking model relation with, with their readers. And I guess, you know, trying to work out of that uh, situation is, is, is very difficult. And I think, you know, maybe one way to do it is the, is, you know, how, like, expanding who is and who is a poet, if that makes sense. No, totally. I mean, I think that's really essential to what we do, you know, and, and to understand the history of that. And that, you know, so one of the things we did last uh, fall, which seems like years ago now, I can't believe it's only last fall. But last fall, uh, we were able to get a small uh, grant from a, a foundation in New York uh, that allowed us, I had always had this idea that writers always have uh, opportunity to, you know, uh, go on writing retreats, right? And you always see it listed in people's bios. I was at McDowell or whatever. And that's a great opportunity for writers, of course. 
but workers never have that opportunity. Even if you're one of the poets in the worker writing school, you can't take a month off to go to Yado. It's, it's impossible. Your, your rent would never be paid. Uh, you, your children would never be fed and taken care of. Right? And so I had this idea that what if we did a creative writing workshop, a weekend writer's retreat? And so uh, we've, I found a, uh, a retreat center uh, near me, uh, right on the New York and the Berkshire border, Massachusetts border. And we rented a uh, small bus to bring about, I, don't know, I think there was about a dozen of our members who were able to get away. Because, of course, not everyone can even get away for a weekend, right? You're driving a taxi, you're taking care of somebody's elderly parent, or, but we had a, a nice small group of people who came up, were able to come up, and, you know, it was like they, all they had to do was show up at, at uh, where the bus was going to be, and then had, I had made little kind of uh, bags for them when they arrived of food and reading materials, pens and pens, and all the meals were uh, provided by the center and everything else. So it was just a chance for them to get away for free for a weekend in the woods. But we had a great series. I was able to align, uh, sign up a great series of uh, guest artists to come in. So one of the people uh, who came the first day for lunch, so in the bag, in the gift bag, one of the re reading materials was Kianga Yamada Taylor's uh, book, like reprint of the Kambahi River Collection. Uh, statement and interviews with some of the writers of that state. And so uh, Barbara Smith lives in Albany, which is only about 30 minutes away. And I reached out to her and said, we're bringing this group of writers, uh, worker writing school members up to uh, this retreat center near you. Would you be interested in coming and having lunch for us, uh, lunch with us? And uh, what made me so happy when I got her email back saying that uh, she would like to do that. So she came uh, and talked to us. People the night before had read some of uh, the, the statement in Kianga's book, and Barbara arrived, and I said, well, here's one of the co-authors of that statement. Uh, and Barbara sat around this big table with us and had this conversation, and she brought with her all these uh, chapbooks that she had published and small books she had published with uh, Audre Lorde and Kitchen Table Women of Color Press. Uh, and it was... Uh, amazing to have her sit around the table and talk to us about this relationship between uh, writing and printing your work and political organizing, and that these things really went all hand in hand. Uh, they were not separate things. You weren't a, a writer, but not a political organizer. You were not. A, you had to be these things all at once. So we spent a whole afternoon with her. And then the next day, um, Joe Bruchak, uh, a Native American poet who lives up in the Adirondack, who has been really involved in uh, prison writing programs, uh, he came down the next day and led a workshop for us. And he told us that, you know, these were some of the writing prompts when he had taught in prisons. And then uh, dropped this little fact, which I, I still can't get over, that he said he had uh, taught in prisons in 38 countries, uh, 38, excuse me, uh, states around the country. Uh, and with his Greenfield Review Press, I have a number of his books, he put out some really of the seminal uh, prison writing anthologies of the 1970s. Uh, and so we had those books to pass around and look at. But it was a chance to, like, how do we get out of this day-to-day -day existence of being a taxi driver, for example, or a domestic worker, 
and get in this environment where we can exist in a writing community for several days. And then we, we return differently, right? We return as like we had been, we had been an active, lived a kind of a writing life for this weekend. And it was really inspirational uh, for a lot of our members. And I remember saying, you know, this, this opportunity, like she said, I'm extremely proud of the work that I do, right? Even if everyone doesn't see it in that light. And she has two kids who are in college and, uh, you know, she, she was saying, but that the ability for them to see me one time at like on a stage at uh, one of the theaters for one of our end of the year events and have her kids see her up there reading her books, like what that meant for the possibility for them to see her in this other light of being a writer. And I think that is like this really moving moment for me because, you know, I even trace it back in the book to, to Ranciere, his, his uh, Proletarian Nights book, that it wasn't that, that workers need to like better understand their oppression, which is often what we get in paintings and things like that. Like everybody knows, right? If you work a job, like, and I remember I worked through, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a college professor now, so I don't have that, that experience now in my life, but everybody in my family worked in factories. And I went through all of high school and college, eight straight years working at a Wendy's restaurant. I'm so happy to see that one burned down. And, and, uh, like to, to be able to create a space out of that working day to be something else is really what these workshops offer, right? Like I am this all my other hours of the day, but for this one hour, I can write down what I've thought and analyze it and hear what others have been doing, thinking, reading. And so that creation of alternative spaces for this to happen in, in, like collaboration with other kinds of organization, I think is, is, is something that I'd love to see a lot more of in, in all of our communities and the writing community as well. Yeah, that reminds me, sorry, real quick, that reminds me of a, a tweet I made, like uh, I said something to the effect of my boss is on vacation, now I get to have a writer's retreat. And <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I did want to underline like um, what you were talking about with uh, Barbara Smith and the Kianga Yamada Taylor book, because one of the things that comes across in those wow. interviews, I think, if I'm remembering the right book, was, you know, like the importance for the Combahee River Collective and the people who came out of that was, you know, having spaces where they got to meet and discuss the issues mm. that would eventually, you know, they would eventually write about in that statement or in subsequent works. And, you know, like, and this is why we talked, I mentioned earlier, and I think you talk about like the importance of, you know, whether it was meeting in union halls or, you know, having that kind of space where you get to talk, talk to your fellow workers uh, without the, without the boss around. Those are, those moments are few and far between, but they, they do matter. And they're also few and far mm. between for a reason. Right. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah>. But <laughs> yeah, there's a reason for that. that does. Yeah. But um, I guess too, like that. Well, I just want to say thank you for sharing that story because we and you mentioned this earlier, but there's a lot of stuff. I feel like there's been a lot of stuff that got cut out of this book, not in a bad way, but just you know, you have been doing this for a long time, and I think you probably have a lot of stories like that that aren't necessarily in the book that didn't you know make the cut, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the book is already 
300 pages. So at a certain point, uh, you know, we just have to say this one ends and, and start on the, on the work that follows. But yeah, there's, there's, and you know, youth poetry anthologies that I left out that are really kind of interesting and incredible. There's a, I don't know, I have right next to me right now, a stack of prison writing anthologies that I didn't talk about. I like met for a moment, Sonia Sanchez's anthology that came out of her workshops that could have been flushed out much more. Uh, you know, that could be a chapter almost in itself. Uh, there's so many possibilities for, for work like this in the future. And I, and I, I keep my fingers crossed that I'll, I'll start seeing, uh, some more works uh, about the People's History of the Poetry Workshop because I'd love to learn from, from other poets and other scholars who, who find different archives and, and locate different things, look at their and what they think that, that, that the writing of the people means. Well, let me ask you this too. This is something I've been meaning to ask. Um, is, there, is there any plans like to have some of the, the work that's come out of these workshops? I know some of it may be for reasons relating to the boss, not wanting the boss to see uh, the poems, but is there, is there any plans to have some of the work that you've, you know, that, that's come out of these workshops published in like an anthology at all? Yeah, we're, we're looking into that. Uh, we've been talking about that for a while. We've been writing for a long time in these two specific forms, the, the Tanka and the Renga. Uh, so there might be a collection of those things. Um, the only thing is uh, that there's a lot of, you know, as I document in the book, there's a long history of books like this coming out and kind of disappearing quickly, not mattering a lot. And there are all these great new technologies, you know, from social media to uh, some. Uh, documentary videographer following to to bring this work out in a larger way. So we're looking at at both of those possibilities. We've been trying to do a lot more like radio stuff, public conversations. Uh, even uh, Aja Monet has been organizing series of Zoom readings while we're social distancing, and some of the Worker Writing School members were able to you know read along with to him the Jess and. Uh, and others. And so uh, there's been these great opportunities to their work out. And, uh, and we definitely think that there is a anthology to distant future. Yeah, and I was, I was, I was <laughs> heading towards the end here, and I promise I'll get to the next question. But um, I did want to ask, because uh, I, I had seen you, you move some of uh, these workshops online. Like, how has it been in the age of coronavirus to do some of this work? Like, what, what, what are the challenges been, and how have you sort of addressed them? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think that that last workshop uh, was, you know, it was great to see everybody as, you know, the stories were just starting to circulate. On, uh, you know, we had no idea. I, no one, I don't think, <laughs> knew that we were still going to be uh, quarantining ourselves, you know, three months later. But in those, that first workshop there, I mean, that last workshop, I really felt a sense of like, both nervousness, but a need to be creative. And uh, it was also simultaneously the week that my book was released, right? So I have this social poetics uh, dropping on March 10th, just as we're announcing social distancing measures. Uh, and so I had to unfortunately cancel a whole slew of events. So open have conversations like this one in, in different communities, but there'll be a time for that. But we decided pretty quickly that uh, in couple of converse, email conversations with some of the members that we wanted to continue meeting 
and we held a first Zoom workshop, uh, I think it was in early April, right at the beginning of April, when we normally the first Saturday of April. Uh, and people liked it so much that they asked if we could uh, increase it. So we now have been meeting uh, twice a month, two Saturdays a month uh, on Zoom, and they've been great. And so people have been excited to see each other. We usually have an opening 15 minutes or so for people to talk about what's going on. Uh, then I usually set up a couple of prompts uh, for some new, we've been working still on the coronavirus haiku, we probably will through this summer at least, uh, and then uh, have a chance for some conversation as well. And we've had really active uh, group participating. And one of the things that's been interesting is that we've even been able to bring in uh, some other people uh, because we're working in Zoom and have to geographically come to, you know, 588 Broadway, uh, Penn's offices to meet uh, physically. And so Zoom has allowed us to have uh, one or two former members who have moved back to one uh, domestic worker, moved back to Trinidad to take care of our mo her mother. So she's been able to join us. Uh, the poet Linda Norton has been uh, working in a program with uh, uh, members of some trade unions Philadelphia, and she asked if they could join us. So last workshop, uh, one of the members uh, who is the head of her union in Philadelphia was able to join us, and two others uh, are hoping to join our next one, and another worker uh, in this program she works with in uh, San Francisco. So it's been, while we miss the physical presence of being with each other, it has allowed us to open up the workshop uh, to some new participants, and that's been Oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. But I guess to get back to the line of questioning I was on before, uh, you also mentioned uh, that you're uh, like the 50th anniversary of Attica is coming up and you you write about uh, collections of, of poetry that came out of uh, that in your book. But I think there's also uh, some hope that another one will be coming out in the future. Yeah. So uh, next September 2021 will be the 50th anniversary of that. When I was working on social poetics, uh, I came across this incredible anthology called Betcha Ain't Poems from Attica. There was a, a poet and teacher uh, in Buffalo, Celeste Tisdale, who was part of the Black Drama Workshop uh, in Buffalo, who uh, right after the uprising started teaching poetry workshops at uh, Attica. So one of the very first, I think as far as I can tell so far, it was the second Black Arts Movement uh, poetry workshop led by a black writer and teacher uh, in the U.S. And so this book came out from Dudley Randall, uh, fabulous broadside press uh, in Detroit, uh, such an influential press uh, for so long. And, you know, it was printed. Uh, people talked about it for a while, and then it's been out of print over 40 years. And I tried to track down Celeste's Dale uh, even though he was from Buffalo and I was from Buffalo, I couldn't find him. Uh, even people who knew him would give me numbers. The numbers were ringing, emails would bounce back. And so when Social Poetics came out, I finally got a number that worked for him. Uh, called him, left a message, and after a little while he called back and he had a first conversation in which he told me that what's in Betjane wasn't all that he had from Attica, that there was actually more poetry, more of the journals he kept. And I was like, this is coming out in, you know, this is a, coming up to the 50th anniversary. It's really a perfect time. We should do an expanded version of this. And he was like, oh, you know, I talked to some people and originally about it. I don't know. 
And I said, just if you don't mind, just send me the materials. Let me have a look at them. And I'm happy to help, you know, organize it, edit it. I've written about your other books so I can do an intro for it and we can get it out to a publisher. And he was like, well, why, uh, why don't you come visit me and we'll talk about it. And he lives in uh, Georgia. So I was like, okay, let, I got on a plane, got a plane ticket, uh, drove to his house from the airport. Uh, and we had a wonderful afternoon together. He showed me all this material. I got to ask him a lot of questions about it. And long story short, uh, we're doing an expanded uh, edition of this uh, poems from the Attica workshops that ran from 72 to 75. Uh, that's Celeste Rand. I've interviewed him a bunch of times. I've even got, he keeps surprising me still with uh, emails at one point uh, over the winter. He called and he's told me that he had this uh, uh, recording that was made in Attica. The workshop participants reading their poems and he had been able to take a reel-to-reel tape recorder <laughs> into Attica and recorded it. And is that something I'd be interested in hearing? I was like, oh my God, you, you were able to take a reel-to-reel tape player into the prison and record it? He's like, yeah, they let me do it. Uh, so I have a copy of that now. Uh, had it digitized. And uh, I'm super excited for people to, to see all of this work. I think that, you know, to, there was this great book by uh, Heather Ann Thompson uh, on Attica, you know, but it doesn't include any of the poetry. And even there's a book about uh, Broadside Press that has like just a little sentence about the book. And I think the book is really incredible and it's an incredible example of everything we've been talking about today. Uh, and so I look forward to, to pulling that all together, of getting it together now, and hopefully it'll be out. Uh, in August of 2021, just in, just in time uh, for, you know, the remembrance of this, this really uh, horrible but important day in the history of the country. Yeah, I hope it, I hope it sees print too. It'd be really cool to, to read. And as you mentioned in the book itself, a lot of these anthologies that we're talking about are just deeply out of print. Um, yeah 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 unfortunately it's true but you know i think if we keep having conversations like this and people keep writing about uh this kind of work that uh there's lots of ways both digitally and in print to to get this to resurface this work and find out why it's so important yeah well thanks for coming on and talking about it well thank you for all these great questions and uh, for the time energy that it takes to pull this all together